Podglomerate original. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, The Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. There's an anecdote that Walt Disney often told that the idea for Disneyland came about when his daughters were young. On Saturdays, he would take them to the park to ride the merry-go-round. And while he sat alone, watching them go by, he felt there should be some place where parents and children could have fun together. That bench and that merry-go-round are still standing, not too far from my home in Los Angeles in Griffith Park. Uh, I'm here in Griffith Park. I, uh, I come here about once a week at least to go on a hike or a walk or just get outside when the weather's nice. But uh, this park also has a connection to the story we've been telling this season. Disney would go on to say that sitting on that bench in the park, that's how Disneyland started. Today, from the carousel, you can see, preserved with a plaque, the actual bench Disney would sit on, watching his daughters, and dreaming of what would become one of the biggest influences of the modern world. I'm Andrew Stephen, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. Sometime after watching his kids on the merry-go-round in 1966, Walt Disney was hard at work developing two theme parks, Disney World and Mineral King, while simultaneously operating his film and animation studios. The most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot. This is audio from the Walt Disney Family Museum tour. Walt focuses on Central Florida for his new park, 
And while it was originally given the working title of The Florida Project, it was publicly announced as Disney World. While Walt plans to build a theme park, his main focus is designing and construction of a futuristic city, one that would introduce and test new ideas. He calls this city the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, or Epcot. Walt's vision was to create an experimental community that would feature different elements of innovation and environmentalism. Like his plans for Epcot and the Mineral King Resort, Disney believed he could create a better world. He thought he could fix the plight of city planning, solve the issues facing the environment, and with enough imagination, a little nostalgia, and an eye for the future, usher in a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. But as these plans are coming together, Walt's health starts to become an issue. In early November 1966, Walt is hospitalized. Indomitable spirit prevails, and he goes back to work on a reduced schedule. However, in late November, he checks back into the hospital. Walt gradually feels stronger in December, to the point that on the 14th, he is using the ceiling tiles of his room to point out the layout of Disney World to Roy. But at 9.35 the next morning, Walt passes away. December 15th, 1966. Walt Disney had died. Like the rest of his work, Disney's Mineral King Resort would now be confined to legacy. And like the film studio and theme parks, they would signify his vision, creativity, and impact on the modern world. But now, with Disney's passing, the future of Mineral King, the future of Disney Productions, the future of the theme parks, were unknown. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. It's an exciting challenge, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. Tasked with completing the ski resort, a team of Imagineers continued to work on Walt's plans. The original 1960s-style architecture morphed into Swiss alpine villages. And continuing in the spirit of preserving and showcasing the natural beauty of the valley, the final plan for the resort outlined a network of hotels, restaurants, activity centers, and more designed to accommodate 14,000 visitors per day, and was approved by the Forest Service in January of 1969, as well as receiving public support from then-Governor of California, Ronald Reagan. Ronnie Reagan, come on in. This is Ronald Reagan co-hosting the broadcast for the opening of Disneyland Park in July of 1955. And any moment now, a flight of planes from the 146th Fighter Interceptor Wing of the California Air National Guard will be over as a tribute to Governor Goodwin Knight. Now the parade is on. As an actor, Reagan never appeared in any Disney films, but as governor, he would support Disney's plan for Mineral King. And uh, after a few words from your sponsor, Ronnie Reagan will take it away for the dedication ceremonies to Disneyland.
This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable, butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on, and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem-free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's Better, H-E-L-P, W-E-I-G-H-T. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle, to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. Anticipation grew as the news spread. Finally, Disney's one-of-a-kind, state-of-the-art, and yet somehow timeless mountain resort would be open to the public. The charm and wonder of Disneyland would blend seamlessly with the desire to preserve the valley's natural beauty, so they said. And support for the resort echoed through the mountains, even as the Sierra Club continued organizing opposition to the park's construction. Governor Ronald Reagan addressed the state. I want to stress as strongly as possible that I am firmly in support of the development of Mineral King as a recreation area, he said. Southern California urgently needs additional year-round mountain recreation areas. Development of Mineral King will help serve that need. The plan would use approximately 80 acres of the Mineral King Valley, with the use of a 30-year permit from the Forest Service. With all the paperwork seemingly in order, skiers expected the resort to open to guests in the winter of 1973, assuming the new all-season road would be completed. 
Soon, many visitors could finally enjoy Mineral King without needing to be backcountry experts. Skiers could feel the mountainsides, guests could vacation in the lodge, and visitors from all over could see the shops, restaurants, and attractions. With any luck, the resort's popularity would bring in enough income to make the whole investment worthwhile in record time. Often, when I'm hiking in New Hampshire, some of the trails that I like to hike on are really popular. This is Taylor Quimby, producer of New Hampshire Public Radio's show, Outside In. Well, I met Taylor applying for this job. (laughs) Taylor's technically my boss. And that's Nate Heggie, the host of Outside In. As professional outdoors people and outdoor promoters, for lack of a better word, I was curious to hear how they dealt with the sometimes at-odds forces in encouraging people to enjoy the outdoors, in making natural spaces more accessible, and the effect we have on the environment. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because the show itself, the genesis of it, we wanted to be able to explore philosophy of wilderness. So not just what's more sustainable or talking about environmental news, but also talking about our relationship to it, because I think that's really complex. Sometimes you know what like the right thing to do is in a quote-unquote way, but that doesn't line up with how we live our lives or how we behave on a trail or swimming in a river. So trying to find the balance between those two things and understand that relationship is what we've aimed to do. And, and like who defines what's right and what's wrong to do in open spaces, I think is also a fascinating kind of rabbit hole to go down. There was a great interview actually uh, in High Country News with um, Chuck Sams, who's the new director of the National Park Service. He's also indigenous, and I think he's Chinook. And he was talking about even that that term of like wilderness is a very Eurocentric colonizer term in the sense that there is no, no such thing as obviously pristine wilderness. Human beings have been a part of nature since time immemorial. And I think we approach sometimes wild places as without that kind of sense of understanding. I also think that there's this interesting thing that we often separate human beings from the rest of the quote unquote natural world. It's like we separate ourselves so we're not considered a part of the animal kingdom, for example. Mm -hmm. But we also separate ourselves individually or in small groups from the rest of the human beings. You know, often when I'm hiking in New Hampshire, some, some of the trails that I like to hike on are really popular. They've been tourist destinations since the Civil War. Some of them are really crowded. And I'll go with friends or family and they'll be like complaining about the crowds. Be like, oh, I can't stand these crowds. And I'm like, listen, you are the crowd <laughs> yeah. to everybody else here. Like you cannot separate yourself and be like, I wish these people weren't here. Like you're a part of that same system. And I, it's a little perspective that I try and remind myself. The wilderness idea of some sort of isolated experience, if you can't have it, Or if you got it, nobody else could, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And like when people say like, oh, they're loving Yellowstone to death. Like when you think of just the sheer magnitude of Yellowstone National Park, what they're doing is they're loving the loop to death. There is like a loop that you drive that's relatively small in that park. And the rest of the park is (laughs) very much an isolating place to be. And the fact too, that if it wasn't loved, it would arguably not be protected and could have been turned into some built world place Absolutely. instead of kept as it is yeah, or was. Years ago, we did a story where we talked a lot about Leave No Trace. And one of the things I learned working on that episode was, you know, when you have a high impact trail that has a lot of people going through it, a lot of focus gets put on like 
oh, there's so much erosion, like this trail, so popular, what are we going to do about it? And part of the Leave No Trace ethics says if there's already a trail actually continuing to siphon people on that trail where the impact has already happened is potentially the best way to do it. So like breaking off and starting new trails, that's going to have more impact in a new way versus like the continued erosion of a trail that already sees just a lot of people. Some of the folks who are like, again, this is really crowded. What are we going to do about it? Those are the same folks who might bushwhack or be like, I want nothing to do with this. So there becomes this kind of interesting point, which is once it's hit that level, like you might just have to accept that the best thing for the world around you is to continue letting that be really popular and like siphon people towards it versus away. Yeah. And then who's the gatekeeper of who gets to experience this and who doesn't get to experience this? This question is what makes the whole thing so much more complicated. More complicated, arguably, than it needs to be. Here's the thing. We make land very complicated. We own land. We take land. We use land. We trade land. We go to war over it. We quote-unquote discover it. But it's a natural resource. It's a living thing. Can you really own that? But then, here in the U.S., we also have public land that we sort of all own, but it's also owned by the government? But we feel ownership of it. Or, at the very least, those of us who enjoy it try to protect it. But what are we protecting it from? Once you get into the Sierra and you see it, and you see anything that's a threat to it, you're an environmentalist, unless there's something wrong with you. This is Fred Fisher, an early member of the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. The Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund came down to Phil Berry, Tony Ruckel in Denver, and Don Harris and me. And this is from a video put out by Earth Justice. The new name the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund eventually became about their early days. We, we just got mad. It was, it was Barry Fisher and myself. That's Don Harris from the same video. And we just got mad about the way things were going. Forests getting torn up and the streams getting polluted and wanted to see if there was something we could do about it. Around this time, the Sierra Club found itself, for better or for worse, as one of the gatekeepers of the environment, especially the Sierra Nevadas. You know, there was a ferment at this time going on, a, a growth of statutes. NEPA was passed, National Environmental Policy Act, I think, in 68. Clean Air Act shortly thereafter, Clean Water Act shortly thereafter. All of a sudden, tools were made available where you could do something about the outrages that were occurring. Whereas that didn't exist before. I grew up in the 90s. It was commonplace to see commercials and stickers and campaigns against littering. I thought Earth Day had been around forever. I remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill and that scene in Mad Men when they finish their picnic and just leave all their trash. That was shocking to me. Now, Living through environmental disasters, wildfires started by power lines, Deepwater Horizon, Dakota Access Pipeline, and more. I naively never imagined a time before all this, when we had a more cavalier attitude towards the environment. It's like, if you want to enjoy the outdoors, you want to be responsible. Here's Taylor and Nate again. You know, you can't put the burden 
of like martyrdom on your shoulders to think that you're going to be the like most zero waste human being on earth because the truth is that like that still is inconsequential when you compare it to the crowds, the masses, the fact that like many footprints are what make a big difference. I mean, this is the question, right? How to manage your personal impact on the environment? Okay, I can wrap my head around that. Or is that the wrong question? We need bigger change, don't we? How do we systemically, or to be blunt, how do you tell others or enforce the same quote-unquote rules for the world? And this is assuming you even have the best set of these so-called rules in the first place. Whose responsibility is that? Or whose should it be? Here's an interesting question for you about responsibility. You know, you could do everything quote-unquote right. You're really trying to like absolutely minimize your impact to the very smallest amount that's possible. But say you're on a trail and then you see somebody else who maybe just because they don't know or willingly is making some unwise or irresponsible decisions. Do you say something? What's the responsibility for you to try and educate or police other people? And I think that's a really hard question. Like that very hard. Each and every case I'm up against it, like I feel myself wrestling with it. There's been mm -hmm. times where it feels very easy to be like, hey, FYI, those are rare alpine plants that like will die when you step on them. So you should really stay on trail here. And there's other times where like I assess the situation and I think saying something may not, like it could just actually create some sort of conflict. And I don't want to do that because I'm on a hike. I think it, it comes down to tone. I know there's been two times, I think of the times I've been corrected. One of them was I had found this really cool feather that I had in my vehicle for a while. And I remember someone came by, I was at a rest stop, I think somewhere in Wyoming, and someone came by and they're like, you know, that's an eagle feather, right? And I was like, oh. And he's like, yeah. And he, he said it in a really nice way, but he's like, it's illegal to have those, <laughs> which it is. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, well, that is not cool. And then I, I remember thinking, I was like, what should I be doing with this eagle feather? And I remember I just decided there was a stream nearby and I just dropped it into the stream. And I was like, I'll just send it down the stream. And then he's like, you know, it's illegal to dump in the streams here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've been corrected too, like even just little things like uh, taking a bike up a muddy trail, the ruts of a bike will, will screw up the trail. And somebody else told me like, hey, just a heads up, it's really muddy up there, you know, um, bike's gonna kind of mess up the uh, the trail. And they said it in a kind way. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. And thought about that. Yeah, I've appreciated it when people say it in a kind tone, when they're not trying to chastise you because you didn't pick up your dog's poop. There's a level of personal responsibility that you have to have in certain situations. What happens when personal accountability becomes managing others' responsibility? After Walt Disney's death, the Disney Company pressed on, pursuing Walt's vision in both Florida and Mineral King. When the Disney Company went to Florida, 
they wanted to make sure they had a lot more control over the whole thing. Than this is environmental law professor Daniel Selmy. Some have certainly viewed the Disney company as the villain. I don't think you can see them as the villain. What you can see them as is as a company that was put under a lot of stress. The, the, the circumstances radically changed. Walt Disney had passed away and the company was intensely loyal to his memory and what he wanted. And so, without their leader, the team at Disney continued developing the Mineral King Ski Park. Mineral King was a beautiful, is a beautiful high basin in the Sierra Nevadas. That's Cynthia Wayburn, who is also featured in that Earth Justice video, sharing her views on what happened. And it was an area that the Walt Disney Corporation was interested in exploiting as a ski area. And Ed and the Sierra Club and Don and Fred and anybody who'd ever been in that area thought it ought to be protected for everyone. Ideally, as a national park, I remember some conversation about that early on, but certainly- And so, in 1969, the Sierra Club filed a federal suit in an attempt to stop the Mineral King project. In their words, they wanted to protect Mineral King for everyone. Disney maybe thought he was doing the same, but the Sierra Club disagreed. They feared Disney's presence, the resort, and increased traffic would negatively impact the environment. And as a technicality even argued the new road, which would have to pass through Sequoia National Park, was an illegal construction antithetical to national park policies. There was a marvelous sense of camaraderie and of doing right, and also tremendous support from the public for what we were doing. Because of the amount of time that had passed from the initial idea to the announcement to development, and all the stalls along the way, public support for the Mineral King Resort began waning. People seemed to really recognize the importance of having a public interest conservation law firm. They argued going forward with this resort was handing too much control of national forest land to Disney. The Sierra Club sued the head of both Sequoia National Park and Sequoia National Forest, meaning they also sued both the Department of the Interior and the Department of Agriculture secretaries. There's no doubt that the Sierra Club would not have opposed this development to begin with, except for the efforts of one person whose name was John Harper, who lived in Bakersfield, worked for Standard Oil, I think, at the time, and just loved Mineral King. Professor Selmy again. It was his efforts that got the issue elevated to the point where the Sierra Club eventually changed its position. So another aspect of the, the story is the effect that one individual could have who uh, believed in something. Mm-hmm. In 1970, President Richard Nixon signed the National Environmental Policy Act, which required federal agencies to study the environmental effects of proposed actions in detail. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, 
parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. To guarantee that birthright, we must act, and act decisively. This meant construction could not begin in Mineral King until the Forest Service analyzed the resort's impact and published the results. Yet another hurdle in the ski park's development. During the past three years, we have made a good start. We have passed new laws to protect the environment, and we have mobilized the power of public concern. But there is much yet to be done. In spite of all this, the Disney team persisted. It would take much more than this to end Walt's dream. I think this is great. I'm just going over some notes, making sure we hit everything. But um, I was going to say, I think this gets back to what we said earlier. When I talked with Taylor and Nate, we ended up somewhat jokingly, but 100% seriously, going on a pretty significant tangent. As far as the sort of gatekeeping stuff goes, the place where I am most skeptical are places where People use the like language of sustainability and conservation, but actually what they're talking about is preserving an experience that they would prefer to have. And that's where that's where it's like the who gets to enjoy nature and in what ways um, becomes the actual thing that they're gatekeeping. And this will be controversial for your listeners. And it would be for ours, too, if I said it on our show. But a good example is like people who play music on little mini boom boxes while they're walking on trails. This is one of those things where you could argue that there's like sound pollution and things like that. And I'm sure that you could make that argument. But mostly when people are complaining about that, what they are complaining about is that they don't want to have to listen to music as they walk by you. It's not necessarily my cup of tea either. But if you're going to share a popular trail with people of lots of different ages and from a lot of different cultures and communities, like that may just be something that you have to put up with and know that that's not about saving, you know, saving the mountain. You make a really good point because I hate when people have Bluetooth speakers <laughs> on yeah. trails. I can't stand it. But at the same time, when it comes to responsible use and your footprint on the landscape, that's not doing much of anything unless you're blasting it so loud that you're scaring all these pronghorn antelope that run into yeah. a fence and die. Yeah. If that happens, then you then you're making a mistake. But most of the time it's just it's just annoying. But that's okay. I get annoyed by people in my town when I walk past them on the sidewalk. <laughs> this is what happens. We get annoyed. It's okay to be annoyed. You don't yeah. need to put in some laws to stop people from annoying you. Totally. And what I hear you saying too is just like it's okay to not like it. It but is. don't disguise your dislike in you're doing the moral right just exactly. thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. You just experience that landscape differently than that person. We can all count on our hands the number of times that we've been annoyed on a trail. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that they're doing anything wrong.
Special thanks to Taylor Quimby, Nate Heggie, and Professor Selmy. As we keep mentioning, Professor Selmy's book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley, is a great resource if you're interested in this story, and it's available wherever books are sold. To hear New Hampshire Public Radio's Outside In, search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you'll want to check it out. For more information, visit us online at trailway.co. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Stephen. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. A Podglomerate original.